My name is Felice, and I'm an alcoholic. Just another alcoholic. <clears throat> um, I am really glad to be here. Uh, I didn't know that the First Things First hosted a quarterly potluck speaker meeting. Um, yeah, it, it's, it's wonderful that you do, because um, the First Things First meeting is uh, it's at 6 a.m., Monday through Friday. And here's, here's what I know about 6 a.m. meetings. You got to be serious to go to a 6 a.m. I mean, seriously, you know, because you talk to most people and say, what's your home group? And they'll be like, oh, it's this meeting or that meeting. And be like, oh, why'd you pick that meeting? It's like, oh, because, you know, it's on the way home from work or, you know, it's, you know, when I get out of school, it's just the closest one. No, you got to be serious to come to a 6 a.m. meeting. You got to get up. You got to get showered. You got to get your face on. You got to come down here. And so I love a meeting that's filled with serious alcoholics because I am a serious alcoholic. <laughs> and um, so uh, I'll tell you a little bit about what it was like, what happened, what it's like now. A little bit what it was like, I drank a lot. Um, I had my first drink at 16. Um, I was in high school. I was not popular in high school. I had characteristics that if you were being kind, you might call them effeminate, but nobody was ever kind in high school. So they call me all different kinds of names. Um, and uh, and so I worked at this little mom-pop grocery store, and Brian, captain of the wrestling team, kept coming through my line and said, hey, we're having a party this weekend. You should come. And I was like, mm, thanks, no. You see, I'd seen that movie Carrie, and I was pretty sure there was a bucket of blood <laughs> with my name on it, and I had no intention... I mean, because, I mean, they picked me up and put me in trash cans. They threw me in lockers. Like, you know, these were not my friends, right? And so, no, I wasn't going to go to your party, but thank you. But he kept coming through the line every day and saying, no, you really should come. You should come. And about the fourth time, I finally said, all right, I'll come. And then um, on the way home, I kind of freaked out because I was like, did he just ask me out on a date? And it turns out that's what happened. And I was a little bit freaked out. So I needed that drink by the time I got to the party. I mean, somebody handed me that said, here, drink this. And I downed it. And it burned all the way down. And it made my eyes water and snot run from my nose. And I coughed and I gagged. And I just drank a big shot glass full of Bacardi 151, which became my drink of choice. Um, <laughs> Because after a few of those, man, I started, I was talking to people and they were talking back and I was laughing with people and they were laughing back. This had never happened to me. I mean, I spent most of my time in school hiding out at this, behind this one row of lockers waiting for the bell to ring and then run into class at the last minute because I just didn't want to run into people. I was afraid of people. And so uh, here I am with people having a good time. And I don't know... I can't describe it other than I knew I wanted that feeling all the time. I wanted this night to go on forever. I wanted every day to be like this night. And so um, I sought out my first bar uh, literally the week I graduated from high school. The week I graduated from high school, I got my first apartment. I got my first car. I got uh, my first job. And I, I came out all in the same week. It was a big week. And so... Um, <laughs> So I went down to this bar, and I walked in, and um, I was underage, so I mostly hid, you know, hid in the dark corner of the bars, and other people bought me drinks. But after a while, you know, they got used to seeing me there, and I want to tell you, um, I fell in love with my reception, you know, because I'd walk in and people would be like, "Woo!" 
so Lisa's here. All right. The party has begun, right? And I didn't get that reception in high school. So this was this was awesome, right? I was loving this. And here's here's the thing about alcoholism, if you don't know this about alcoholism. It's a progressive disease. So progressively, my reception got less enthusiastic, right? <laughs> it went from like, Solis is here, the party's begun, to here he comes. <laughs> here he comes. Hang on to your drinks, your drugs, your wallets, and your husbands, because here he comes. <laughs> you know, and, um, and I knew I had a problem. It was clear to me I had a problem. Sacramento was the problem. I need I need to get my drink on somewhere else, right? But I had no education and I had no way of doing that, so I did what seemed like a perfectly reasonable solution to me. I joined the United States Navy. Now that posed a new set of problems. Um, I still hadn't let go of my uh, effeminate characteristics, nor have I still, and so uh, that the Navy wasn't too keen on those, and so. Um, I did my best. I, I tried to fit in with the crowd. I did what I was told, uh, did the boot camp thing, did the naval school thing, got stationed in Detroit, Michigan, you know, join the Navy, see the world, go to exciting destinations. And, um, <laughs> so I'm in Detroit, Michigan now, and I find this bar called Tiffany's. And I swear you, you could have picked up the rec room from Sacramento and dropped it in Detroit because it was the same bar. It was the same bar. Sawdust on the floor, peanut shells all over the place. You know, it was the same bar. You know, and again, enthusiastic reception until it's not an enthusiastic reception. And I also started having problems around this time. Showing up for work on time was a problem. And not one that the Navy um, doesn't frown on. Because, you know... um, they won't hold a plane or a boat for you if you don't show up on time. And so it's called missing ships movement. It's a crime. And uh, I'm like, I, that's, I'd lo- I loved it when I was new and people would be in here and they'd be like, oh, I'd lose my car all the time. And be like, yeah, I bet have you ever lost a ship? Huh? Yeah, because it was right here and it's like humongous. <laughs> like if you lose the ship, you're a serious alcoholic, right? And so I... Uh, had to go before the captain, and um, they suggested that I might have a drinking problem. Now, I did not think I had a drinking problem. I have to say that I grew up uh, in an alcoholic home. My mother was a single parent of five kids, and our family business was a bar. So my mom was at the bar all the time. And I knew what alcoholics looked like, because it was a neighborhood drinking bar. I could go in there anytime and see all the same faces sitting in all the same chairs every night, night after night. And I didn't drink that way. And so I knew I could not be an alcoholic. And certainly I didn't drink any harder than all my uh, shipmates drank, because they drank. You know, I thought I knew how to drink, but the military really taught me how to drink. And so um, they sent me to level one rehab, which is like outpatient therapy. So you're sitting in a circle with a drug and alcohol counselor, and he's asking, why do you think you're here? And why do you think you're here? And why do you think you're here? And he gets around to me. He's like, why do you think you're here? And I'm like, I'm here because I have back problems. Namely, everybody's on it, and if they'd get off it, I would be just fine, right? Because I didn't think I was an alcoholic. I honestly did not think I was an alcoholic. Here's what I had in my mind. I figured the Navy thinks that I'm queer, and they want me out, and they're going to use this to do it. That's my line of thinking, right? And so um, I came in to work one day late yet again. I had uh, I came into the work 
late all the time. But this time, my chief petty officer was standing in the parking lot. And so he said, why are you late this time? Because I had a different excuse every day. And I said, well, I had a blowout on the way to work. And I thought, oh, my God, Solis, what a good lie. That is a great lie. Because I slept in my military uniform, so I looked like I just changed the tire, right? Like, I'm all dirty and everything. And he's like, wow. He goes, uh, let's open up your trunk. I want to see your blown tire. <laughs> yeah, like my heart fell into my stomach, you know. And we walked around to the back of the car. And I put the key in. I opened it up. And because I'm a procrastinating alcoholic, I had a blowout like a year earlier and never got it fixed. So he was like, okay, you're off the hook this time. But this is the last time. The next time you're going to see the captain, and I don't care if he takes a stripe or takes you out of the Navy, I'm done protecting you. And I heard him that day in a way that I hadn't heard him before. And I remember thinking, oh, man, I can't be late tomorrow. Maybe I can be late next week, maybe next month, but not tomorrow, right? In fact, tomorrow I'm going to be the first one here, right? I'm going to be right at my desk when he comes in and he can see how serious I am, right? And, um, and that's why when I go out tonight, I'm going to have just one. <laughs> the book talks about how we can't recall with sufficient force the memory of suffering of a few weeks or a few months ago. Yeah. Mine lasts eight hours. Eight hours. Eight hours later, I was sitting at a bar again. And, and a few hours after that, when 2 o'clock came around and the lights came up, I was like, what happened? I was going to have just one, right? So I was driving home in Michigan in conditions too snowy for how fast I was driving, but I had to get home. I had to get to bed because I couldn't be late the next day. And my car went into a skid as I hit the garage button, the door for the garage door to go up. And... um. And when I came to a stop, I was looking at the sidewall of the garage because I had slid my car in perfectly sideways. It was wedged in the garage sideways. And, you know, I'm like one of those alcoholics that's like, I can't deal with this right now. I can't deal with it tomorrow. I can't. I can never deal with it right now. Right? I'll deal with it tomorrow. And so, you know, you can imagine the look on my face when I come out the next morning and my car is in the garage sideways. <laughs> my first thought is, what the F? And then my second thought is, oh, my God, this is a great excuse. No one's ever used this one, right? <laughs> and so I called my chief petty officer. I said, my car is in the garage sideways. So he came over and looked at the car. And he said, you're going to level two rehab. Level two rehab was not so much fun because now I'm confined to base. And they make him go to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous which aren't very anonymous because they're on base and you're there with all your coworkers, right? We all got our names right on our chests, right? And so I'm looking up here and I was like, okay, I'll work that one. Don't need that one. Don't need that one. Got no amends to make, right? So I already was setting myself up for problems in Alcoholics Anonymous. I was already making a decision about what I was going to do and what I wasn't going to do, right? And because of that, um, I made it very challenging for me for myself. Uh, I saw the word God and I immediately said, nope, not interested, right? Um, I grew up very religious and um, uh, went to church every Sunday and every Saturday and was really involved in the church and and I felt that had failed me. Um, And so I didn't want any part of God. And so my first resentment in Alcoholics Anonymous was how can the federal government order me to go to a religious institution? Do we not have separation of church and state in this country? Like, what congressman do I have to write to to tell this is going on, right? And so 
it was around this time that um, I got arrested and um, charged uh, with homosexuality because up until nine years ago, it still was a crime. And um, so I was sitting in the cell um, wearing no clothes. They took my clothes. They wanted to see that I wasn't wearing women's underwear. Well, I'd like to tell the people in my home group that day, it was just my luck that day that I wasn't. <laughs> but it was cold. And I remember um, having uh, the conversations that I was having my sponsor about the third step. And um, as we understood him is underlined up there. And I don't know why that stood out to me in the jail cell. Like I'd seen it a hundred times, right? But on that particular day, as we understood him, jumped out. And it was kind of like, I think I understand what my God, my sponsor had been trying to say. He had been saying, you can build a God of your own, which sounded like heresy to me, you know, coming from my religion that I came from. So I was like, I ain't going to build my own God. That's what, what kind of talk is that, right? But in that moment, um, I was willing to go to any links in that moment. I was scared. Um, I was sitting there. They told me I was going to be there for a few days because somebody was coming from Great Lakes, Illinois to issue me a lie detector test. And so at first I was like, oh, bring it. I am a professional liar. Like I have been lying my whole life. I am not afraid of your test. Hook me up. Do your best, right? But as time went on and I got colder in that cell, I started thinking, shit, what, what if I can't lie anymore? What if being sober and turning my life and my will over to the care of God means I can't lie anymore? That terrified me. I thought, oh, my God, they're going to hook those things up to my fingers. And they're going to say, are you queer? And I'm going to say no. And the needle's going to go, woo, and the bulb's going to explode. My career's going to be over. And so, um, yeah, I started to seek the idea of a God. I was, um, shortly after that whole incident, I got to stay in. I was in the Navy for 12 years. But shortly after that incident, I was riding to a meeting with my sponsor, uh, to a meeting in downtown Detroit, and I was <clears throat> tapping my foot. We were listening to a Motown station. And he said, you like Aretha Franklin. I was like, I love Aretha Franklin. He was like, do you think she's a force in music? I was like, she's the queen of soul. Of course she's a force in music. He's like, do you think Aretha Franklin hates you? I was like, how? Aretha Franklin hates me. He's like, but God hates you. And I was like, oh, yeah, God has it out for me. And he said, so when you listen to Aretha, do you do you feel happy? And I was like, yeah. He goes, it changes your whole attitude and outlook upon life when you hear one of her songs. And I was like, yeah. He goes, so just for today, just for today, do you think you could turn your life and your will over to the power of music, the power of Aretha Franklin? And I was like, oh, that just sounds hokey. He goes, well, tonight when we circle up at the end of the meeting and we all bow our heads and we say, God, when we say this serenity prayer, I want to hear you say Aretha. Okay. All righty then. And I want you to know that I started changing. I started hearing things differently. You know, when Aretha came on, I'd really listen to those songs. Think. You better think about what you're trying to do to me. Think. Let your mind go. Let yourself be free. 
when my soul was in the lost and found, you came along to claim it. Right? And I could hear God in those lyrics in a way that I hadn't heard them before. And I started listening to other songs, and I realized God was in those songs too. And so I did start to change. But here's the resentment I had. So when I was in, when I was going to my admin board, which is like a courts martial for the charge of homosexuality, um, you have this period of um, discovery where both sides share their information with the other. And so they had to give my lawyer all the information they had gathered against me. And what they had gathered was mostly interviews from people in that AA meeting on base. And the things that I said in the meeting and the pronouns that I used. And I hated alcoholism. So when they told me that I was going to have to go to 12-step meetings, probably for the rest of my career, I said, any 12-step meetings? And they said, any 12-step meetings? And I said, fine. So I took that piece of paper and I went across the hall to the other 12-step group, our sister fellowship. I joined Al-Anon. Because remember, I grew up in an alcoholic family, so I qualify for that one. So I was you know, in those Al-Anon meetings. And of course, they're looking at me like, what? You need a paper signed off. And I was like, they're like, are you sure you're not supposed to be in that meeting across the way? I'm like, no, just sign it, please. So I'm going to Al-Anon now for a couple years, right? Um, and it was October 1987. And there was a AA conference in Toronto, Canada. And they called me up and they asked if I would be the Al-Anon speaker for the AA conference. And I said, yeah, sure, okay, yeah. So um, I went up there, and um, I'd never been to an AA conference. It was big. There was like 800 people there, right? And um, I was nervous because I'd never told my story before from a podium like this, right? And so I did what seemed perfectly natural to me. I stopped at the hotel bar on the way to the podium and did a couple of shots. I mean, I just needed to, right? That just made sense to me, right? So they had a dais. They had like a big table up on the stage. And they had me sitting next to the alcoholic because I was going to speak first and then she was going to speak second. And she leaned over and she said, oh, honey, is that tequila? And I leaned back at her and I said, oh, honey, is that jealousy? (laughs) But here's how God works in my life. You know, I'm living in Detroit, Michigan, and I'm up in Toronto, Canada. And the speaker that night, her name was Grady O'Hare, and she was from Sacramento, California, my hometown. And she was a really foul mouth, in your face kind of woman who took no prisoners. And um, in retrospect, it's a wonder I got to keep my face that night. But she just laughed. She just laughed. And when I got finished speaking, and when she got finished speaking, and she sat back down next to me on the dais, she said, you said in your story that you're coming back to California. And I said, I am. She said, when you get back to Sacramento, you make sure you come visit us at the North Hall Group of Alcoholics Anonymous, because we are saving a seat just for you. And I knew what that meant, right? The book says that more than any other, the alcoholic leads a double life. Man, that implies two, right? Two lives. (laughs) I would have loved to have had just two lives, right? Like at the peak of my drinking, I am 
I'm on a weapons load team, and we are running drills every day with a stopwatch to load this ordinance onto this aircraft. And I'm looking at my watch, but it's not because I care about how long this ordinance is taking. I am a drag queen down at a club downtown, and i got to get my mascara on. Can we move this along? i got people to go, places to be, people who are looking for uh, me to sing my song. Like, i got no time for this, right? i got daytime friends I can never introduce to my nighttime friends. i got people over here I can never introduce to the people over here and so on right and here's the problem with juggling all those plates it requires a lot of lying a lot of lying right it takes two to cover up one four to cover up two eight to cover up four 16 to cover up eight 32 to cover up 16 ad infinitum i couldn't remember if i told this person the same thing i told this person over here but i had to make sure that they stay apart so they don't compare notes right and you can easily lose yourself, easily, right? The book talks about how we have an inability to differentiate the true from the false. How could we know the true from the false? I've lied so many times, I don't even know what the truth is anymore, right? <laughs> I don't know what the truth is anymore. Yeah. And so um, I was stuck, you know? So my last night of drinking was in Lake Tahoe, Nevada, and I got arrested. And... Um, I had to ask the police officer what I was being arrested for, which is another sign you might be an alcoholic if you generally don't know, because I've come out of a blackout, and now I'm in a cop car with my hands cuffed behind my back. So he said, drunk in public, uh, attempted hijacking, and inciting a riot. And all I could think of was, like, that's not me. That doesn't sound like me. That sounds, no, it doesn't sound like something I do. But I couldn't tell you with any certainty what I'd been up to. I didn't know where the last few hours had gone, right? And that really frightened me. Blackouts usually didn't frighten me. They were kind of fun, you know? You'd find out the next day, because you know you always ran into somebody who's going to tell you what you did, where you know, what you said, who's going to be mad at you when you go to the bar, you know, all that kind of stuff. But I was not happy that night. And I knew I was going to have to go to Alcoholics Anonymous. And at that point, I was willing to do that, willing to do anything. So... On January 1st, 1988, I walked into the North Hall group of Alcoholics Anonymous in Sacramento, California on a Tuesday night. And wouldn't you know, it was beginner's night. (laughs) And beginner's night at North Hall, they have a panel of old timers, three old timers that sit up at the desk. And it's an ask a basket format. So everybody writes out any question you ever wanted to know about Alcoholics Anonymous. And then they sit up there and they unfurl them and they read them out loud so they don't know who wrote the question mm-hmm. and um i was like oh my god because there is grady o'hare sitting up there with the old timers and i'm like just my luck right so i'm trying to hide in the back you know and um and they said is there anybody here who's new and um congratulations for having the courage to do that i almost didn't have the courage to do it that night but i did i said my name's Salisa and i'm an alcoholic and she was like what who said that she said, oh, you, yeah, you can shut the F up now. You just told us everything you know. You don't know any more than what you just said. And all I could think of was, like, we never greet newcomers in Allen on that way, ever. <laughs> but she was the one that unfurled my little piece of paper that I had written a question on. And the question that I wrote was, how do you stay out of the bars? 
And I wasn't being facetious with that question. I really wanted to know. See, because AA was okay for you. I get it. You're old. You're over 30. Like, <laughs> potlucks, basements, bingo, whatever. Yeah, got it. You know, I'm in my early 20s. I like the nightlife. I got to boogie. I mean, yeah, there's no way I'm hanging out here every night. That's just not going to happen, right? So how do you stay out of the bars? And she said, honey, whoever wrote this question, you're what we call a barfly. And the reason they call us barflies is because we barf and we lie. And I started laughing. Even though I had a hangover, I started laughing. And I want you to know that that night, that became the music of Alcoholics Anonymous for me, the laughter. And it's been the thing that heals me when nothing else will. Right? We come in here and we tell the most sordid tales about ourselves, things we swore we would take to the grave, and yet here we are in a meeting talking openly about it, right? Or at the coffee shop afterwards, you know? And um, there's healing that. There's healing in knowing I'm not the only one who's ever experienced degradation, oppression, sadness, aloneness, right? So I told my sponsor because I got stationed in San Jose, California to go to Moffett Field. So I told my sponsor, I was pretty sure I had a problem in addition to alcoholism. And he said, what's that? And I said, loneliness. I need a relationship. He was like, oh. Got that 30-day chip yet? I'm like, almost. Don't hate. (laughs) And he's like, it's just like this. It's like God is baking the perfect cookie for you. He'll be presented at the perfect place, at the perfect time, under the perfect circumstances. But in the meantime, it's your responsibility to practice patience and work these 12 steps. And I was just like, really? Is this like in the literature somewhere? Like, I don't remember ever hearing about the cookie. He's like, oh, yeah, just hang on. It's coming. You know, and I watch my 30-day chip come and go and my 60 and my 90 and my 6-month and my 9-month and my 1-year chip. You know, and uh. And my sponsor asked to see my one-year chip, and I smacked it down on the table, and I said, where the hell is my cookie? (laughs) I've done the work. And he said, I think you're ready for the real conversation. I was like, we didn't have the real conversation? He goes, oh, no, we're going to have the real conversation now. It's like this. Uh, God is not a pimp. God does not produce a man uh, just because you want one. And this ain't Domino's Pizza. He ain't going to be delivered in 20 minutes or less. And I was like, what are you saying? And he opened up the 12 and 12 to the fourth step. And in the fourth step, it says, um, we have the inability to form a true partnership with another human being. And I remember my heart falling in my stomach like it did that day that I was asked to show the the spare tire. You know, and um, I remember thinking... That sounds like a life sentence of being alone is what it sounds like, right? Um, But he opened up and he reminded me, no, on page 62 it says, selfish self-centeredness, we think that is the root of our troubles. Driven by a hundred forms of self-fear, delusion, self-seeking, and self-pity, we step on the toes of our fellows and they retaliate. Sometimes they hurt us seemingly without provocation, but we invariably find that at some point Sometime in the past, we made decisions based on self, which later placed us in a position to be hurt. And he said, that's our problem. In order to find and experience true love, you'd have to be able to put someone else's needs before your own, on occasion. 
you can't do that. And that's the truth. I could not do that. It was me first all the time, right? And um, because of that malady, because of the selfishness and self-centeredness, I was not going to be a good candidate for a relationship. So he said, so we have to work on that. So we um, did a sane, sound sex ideal, which consisted of him pushing a piece of paper across the desk to me and say, what I want you to do is I want you to write out everything you ever wanted in a man. Everything. And I'm like, everything? I'm going to need two pieces of paper. He's like, <laughs> he said, fine. The more thorough, the better. So I write, and 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 I'm finished, and I give him the piece of paper, and he looks at it, and he starts laughing and crossing things off. And I'm like, what are you doing? You said that was my list. I could have whatever I wanted. And he said, that is what a selfish person would say, yes. <laughs> But let's look at some of these things, shall we? You'd like him to be over six feet tall. And I was like, well, yeah, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And he's like, are you over six feet tall? And I was like, well, no. And he goes, asking something in exchange for nothing in return is the very definition of selfishness. We're going to cross off every selfish thing on this list. I like this one. Uh, faithful? Have you ever been faithful in any relationship you've been in? And I was like, well, no, but... And he's like, yeah, we're crossing that off. We get finished, we're left with boring things like kind, considerate. <laughs> you know? I'm just like, what? He said, this is your list. He drew a checkbox next to every single item. He said, now you have a list. See, you've been out shooting off arrows or whatever it is you're shooting, and you've never had a target. So how can you hit something that you haven't drawn? Oh, wow. And so I was like, okay. So he said, you're ready to start dating. And I was like, okay. He goes, and you're going to ask somebody out in AA. And I was like, you have lost your mind. <laughs> Nuh-uh. This is a big scratch and dent sale in here. Like, I am not interested in anything in this room. Like, I don't shop in the irregular section. I don't go to Marshall's. No, this ain't happening. And so he said, or you might find someone who's on a parallel spiritual path. That could happen, too. And I was like, whatever. So one night we're sitting in the meeting, and this guy walked by, and I was like, okay, him. He said, great, get on over there and ask him. So I came back and he said, did you ask him? I was like, no. He's like, why not? I said, you know, I just don't know if I'm ready for sex yet. And he was like, sex? Who said anything about sex? He said, I said, dating. Do you know what dating is? And I was like, I think so. He goes, no, I don't think so. He goes, dating is merely gathering information. That's it. You go with your friends to coffee before the meeting and after the meeting, right? It's the same thing. You sit down with someone. You ask them a series of questions. You spend no more than one hour. You'll take more than one hour of their time because you're selfish. But at the end of one hour, you're done. You thank them for their time. You get up, you leave. You each go home to your respective residences, a point you always seem to forget. And then in the morning when you're doing your devotional, your morning prayer and meditation, you ask God, did I gather enough information? You're only going to get one or two answers. Either I gathered more information than I ever wanted or needed, or i like some more information. So he goes, either way, you pick up the phone, you call the person, and you say, hey, 
I feel like I made a new friend in AA. Thanks so much for coffee yesterday. I'll see you in a meeting sometime. Bye. Right? You left no ambiguity about what it was, what it is, where it's going. Or you call and you say, I really enjoyed coffee yesterday. Um, do you think you might be free in a couple of weeks to do that again? I'm like, a couple of weeks? He's like, yeah. You're an alcoholic. You want more information. You want it now and preferably horizontally. And that's not how this is going to work. <laughs> If this is a lifelong errand, what is two weeks? Okay. So we went out on a date. I, I, I've told the story a million times that it was the worst date I've ever been on. But I hung it out. I hung out because at the end of the date, he said something that sounded very passionate. He was passionate about art. So he's talking about art. And he's talking about art, and he's talking faster, and he's talking louder, and I'm thinking, nobody should ever get this excited about watercolors. <laughs> but then I remembered, like, oh, my God, passionate is on my list. Shit. So I was like, oh, my God, now I have to start paying attention, right? <laughs> and over the coming weeks, he started checking every single box. And I went to my sponsor, and I said he checked every box. He said, that's great. I was like, no, it's not great. Like, we have nothing in common. Like, seriously, nothing, nothing in common. And he's like, I don't remember you putting that you wanted a mini version of yourself on that list. See, you think if you had somebody to go to car shows with, you know, or uh, do the stuff that you like to do, again, that's selfishness, right? He's like... Getting to know somebody who has completely different interests than you could expand your horizons and your in your world, you know. And so I was like, okay. So um, he stuck around. He's still here, 33 years later. It's Rob, and um, we made it work. It's not easy to have two relation, two programs in one relationship, you know, because he's got his version of the program and I got my version of the program. And we couldn't even learn how to do basic things like argue because, you know, there's an escalation in an argument above FU because we'd get to FU and then we'd say, call your sponsor. It's like, oh, you did not just tell me to call my sponsor. You call your sponsor, right? <laughs> <laughs> so you have to learn you have to learn how to compromise you have to learn how to concede you have to learn that you're not always going to get your way every time this is called maturity it's called growing up it's called getting well in Alcoholics Anonymous right we have the 12 traditions right our common welfare should come first personal recovery depends upon AA unity you can apply that to your marriage or relationship. The common welfare of the group comes first, which means I'm not always going to get my way. What's best for both of us as a family might not be what's best for me personally, mm. right? And I have to be willing to accept that if I want the group to be held together, <laughs> right? Because we've been in these meetings where people don't get along or we have a conflict and now all of a sudden people are storming off and it's like, those are people who haven't grasped this notion that you have to compromise. We don't always get our way. And every group has the right to be wrong, right? 
So that means we'll make mistakes, but then we can change our mind again and make a new decision. And that has been the freedom that we talk about in the in the promises for me. A new freedom and a new happiness means there's no bad or wrong decisions. They're just decisions, right? I've stopped labeling all my experiences good, bad, and ugly. They're just experiences, right? Because they're now part of my kit of spiritual tools that I take with me and I get to put them to use, right? So if there's somebody that I'm sitting with and they're doing their fist step and they're talking about being sexually assaulted. I've been sexually assaulted, so I know what that feels like. Imagine if I'd had the perfect life and was sitting across from somebody just staring at them like, I don't know what you're talking about, right? But because of all my experiences, I know what they're talking about. And I can offer compassion and I can offer um, the assistance and the experience of my own surrender around those topics. You know, I was listening to this amazing um, essay on my way to work one day. I used to work at UT and every day when I'd drive into UT, I'd be stuck in traffic on I-35, but I'd listen to these podcasts, and I listened to one in particular because it was kind of a positive podcast, and it was basically people who have written essays about something that they believe in, and the author reads their own essay on the air, right? It's actually an old radio program, but now is a podcast, but occasionally they'll pull one out of the archives from, like, when it was a radio program. So they said, our next essay will be presented from 1950s archive and it's going to be marty man so i'm like marty man marty man oh my god the first woman who got sober in alcoholics anonymous like i cannot wait for this right i'm 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 already at work i'm in my parking spot and i'm not going anywhere until i hear this essay right <laughs> and her essay is entitled twice i sought death Ooh. and basically the gist of her essay is suffering as a necessary component of the human condition and I just remember going, wah, wah, wah. like, where's the hope in that? Like, where's the, but now I've read it several times and I understand what she's saying, right? Your suffering looks different than my suffering. Mm-hmm. His suffering looks different than her suffering, right? The reason Alcoholics Anonymous works is because we have a primary purpose and a singleness of purpose, right? We come here to help the alcoholic who's still suffering, that's it. Not the straight alcoholic who's still suffering. Not the black alcoholic who's suffering. Not the Jewish alcoholic who's still suffering. The alcoholic who's still suffering, right? If you are suffering from the disease of alcoholism, you belong here. Mm-hmm. Any of your other identities don't matter here. The reason I say I'm an alcoholic is because that's all that's necessary. I don't have to tell you I'm an alcoholic of any other kind. Right. And it's important that I say I'm an alcoholic because I used to say I'm an addict and an alcoholic. And my sponsor said, you know, I need you to start putting a dollar in the basket for every identity that you give, because (laughs) this is Alcoholics Anonymous. And we want to make sure for so long as you keep trying to introduce yourself differently, you're holding on to your individuality and it's hurting you. Why don't you just become like one of us? And I want you to know that there's been some peace and serenity in becoming just like you. And here's the thing. I did not want to be just like you. But there's peace in becoming just like you. No different, no better, no worse. I came in here with a huge issue around pride. And when I say pride, I was not grandiose. And that's what I thought pride was. They talked a lot about pride when I was new, and I would be thinking, they're not talking about me. 
I'm a piece of shit, you know. And my sponsor said, oh, that's pride. That's pride in reverse. He's like, if you're saying, look at me, I'm the greatest thing that ever lived, you're full of pride. If you're saying, look at me, I'm the biggest piece of shit that ever lived, you're full of pride. Either way, you're saying, look at me, right? And I never thought of it that way. And so I had to had to think of it in an entirely new way. My sponsor, Jim Barry, was... Um, he was amazing. He taught me everything I knew in early sobriety. Everything. Um, he hung up in me a lot, which pissed me off. I would call him, and he'd say, how are you doing? I'd be like, okay. He'd say, did you go to a meeting today? I'd say, not yet. He'd say, you might want to do that. And I'd say, yeah, I know. Click. So I'd drop another corner and say, did you just hang up on me? He's like, yeah, because you know. Call me when you don't know. Click. Damn it. <laughs> 75 cents later, stop hanging up on me. He said, stop knowing. Why would you seek a solution if you already know? True. Why would you have an open mind if you already know? Why would you even seek out my experience, strength and hope, if you already know? So we're going to remove some things from your vocabulary. We're going to remove I know. We're going to move words like always and never. Because those are all absolutes that imply a closed mind. Right? And so... I moved here to Austin um, in 2007, and uh, um, I'll touch on this a little bit. I'm going to talk about this more next Friday. Uh, If you didn't know, the Capital Texas Conference is next Friday. It's the 10th anniversary. Um, They asked me to speak next Friday because I'm the one that helped start the Capital Texas Conference. Uh, I was... Uh, a trustee at Intergroup when they decided they wanted to start a conference and they asked me to be the very first chair. So I put together the Capital of Texas Conference and it's been going on for 10 years now. So it's a big honor to be asked to speak next week because I've never been asked to speak by my hometown conference because they've all heard my story. So why would they need me to speak at a conference? But I'm going to talk a little, it's going to be a different talk next week because I'm going to talk about like how the Capital of Texas Conference came about and mostly how it saved my life. We all have that period in our sobriety, and I've had several. Five, at five years, I, I had this period of like, is this all there is? Is this going to be my life for the rest of my life, meetings and this? At 10 years, my ass fell off. All the anger I came into AA with came back. I ended up in uh, jail for assault on a police officer. It's really humbling when you have to call your husband and say, I know I was on my way to a meeting, but I'm actually in jail. Can you come bail me out? Right? <laughs> At 16 years, I had to file bankruptcy, had watched my cars get you know, towed away because they were, got repossessed. Um, and at 22 years, uh, I was sitting over at Strange Brew, coffee shop that used to be not far from here. And I was writing out uh, important things, like this is how you access the 401k. This is where you get to my life insurance policy. This is how you do these things, because I was planning on um, driving my convertible out to the hill country and getting it up to speed without my seatbelt on and flipping it, flipping the car, because I just didn't want to be here anymore. And drinking was not an option, but killing myself seemed like a safe option, right? Because that's how that's how alcoholic I am, right? And so this newcomer came and sat across from me, and she's like, blah, 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 blah. And I was just like, oh, my God. 
I'm trying to kill myself here, can't you? <laughs> I said, stop, stop, stop. Have you talked to your sponsor about any of this? And she said, no. And I said, go do that. And then if you still need to talk to me, come back and talk to me then. She said, oh, okay. So she bounced off. And of course, I thought, oh my God, Solis, have you talked to your sponsor about any of this? No, I had not. Um, and uh, he wouldn't want me to say, but I will tell you, uh, my sponsor was Dan H. at that time. And I called him up and he said, can you sit there for 15 minutes? And I said, yeah. And he said, can you just not kill yourself today? And I said, I reserve the right to do it tomorrow. He said, yes, but just for today. And I said, yes. And he said, can you go to the meeting tonight? Because at the time, my home group was Annie Links, which meets here at this clubhouse at 10 p.m. He said, can you go to the meeting tonight? And I said, yes. He said, you're going to need to, to, to tell on yourself. And I said, I can't do that. I can't do that. I'm Solis Ruff. People have expectations of me. They think I'm well. <laughs> I can't possibly pop that bubble. They'd be so disappointed. <laughs> you know, I would be disappointed, you know? And he's like, nope. And invariably, you know, somebody came up to me after the meeting. They said, yep, the healing begins when the squealing begins. You got to tell on yourself, right? But I want you to know that my home group rallied around me. People called me every day. Are you doing okay? You going to the meeting tonight? You want to go to coffee at Strange Brew before the meeting? You want to go to the taqueria after the meeting? They would not leave me alone. I just wanted to be left alone. <laughs> and they wouldn't leave me alone. You know? My mother passed away um, during just before COVID. It was really hard because my mother... Um, and I had a very close relationship. She was an alcoholic, and eventually she did find recovery. And so we found we spoke the same language. And my siblings could never understand why mother and I were so close, but we were, you know, we were tight. We had we talked about God, we talked about life, we talked about death, we talked about everything. And um, I got that call that nobody ever wants to get. You know, um, my sister called and said, "Mom might not make it till the morning." I was like, "What the hell happened?" He, She's like, she just fell into a really bad um, pneumonia and she might not make it till morning. And I was like, I'm on the next flight. And so I made it there in time and uh, I held her hand and um, they were disconnecting her from the machines. Like she asked, she didn't want to be kept alive artificially. And she said, are they moving me? And I said, no, mom, they're not moving you. And then she got that look on her face like she knew what I was talking about. And she said, oh. And then she squeezed my hand and she said, I'm scared. And I said, I know, Mom, but I love you, and I'm not going anywhere. And she said, and I love you. And I said, I know. And in that moment, I realized I had uttered the words, I know, after struggling for years to not say that, right? But there's some things I do need to know. I need to know that I'm loved in Alcoholics Anonymous. You need to know you're loved in Alcoholics Anonymous. You need to know you matter to my sobriety. You know, in whatever capacity to my sobriety you play, you matter, right? And so, um, was at my mother's funeral, and my father asked to have the microphone, and my brothers and sister looked at me like, what's he going to say? Because they had been estranged since 1973. And he said um, that Esther did a great job raising five kids on her own because he had left. And my father and I did not have a relationship. Um, my father was a very machismo, 
all-star athlete. I was none of those things. And so he said, um, no parent should have a favorite, but if I had a favorite, it would be Solis. And my brothers are looking at me, and I'm looking at them like, I don't know what this old man's talking about. Literally, I have no idea what he's talking about. He said, in 1968, Esther and I had a fight. She threw me up against the wall because we'd come in from playing catch, and Solis was crying. Because my father would get so frustrated with me. He was trying to make an athlete out of me. And he'd say, I'm going to throw this baseball at your face. And you're going to learn to put that mid up to protect yourself. And I learned how to swat. I'd be like, ah! Ah! (laughs) And I'll never forget the first Saturday he, he didn't say, go get your mitt. And then the second Saturday he said, he didn't say, go get your mitt. And the third Saturday he told my little brother, go get your mitt. And I thought, he's given up on me. He's ashamed of me. He's embarrassed by me. And that was the nature of our relationship for 50 years. 50 years. Wow. But he said, on that day, she threw me up against the wall and said, leave him alone. He's going to be whatever kind of boy he's going to be. He's going to grow up to be whatever kind of man he's going to be. But you're not helping. Leave him alone. And he said, he'd been trying to leave me alone. And he was so happy that I turned out fine without any assistance from him. And I didn't know they'd had that conversation. So if I don't know that, what else don't I know after 50 years, right? It blew my mind wide open. There's so much I don't know. And the idea that y'all would have me here tonight to be up here and share with you all the things I don't know (laughs) is a gift. Thank you so much for having me.